you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Well, as you're grabbing your Bible and finding Luke chapter 1, we'll finish up with Luke chapter 1 today. And as you're finding that, we're reminding ourselves uh, where we are. We had, uh, the last time we talked about Zechariah, Zechariah had had his turn in the temple, and he had gone into the temple, and the angel Gabriel had appeared to him and told him this news of this miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth, his wife, in her old age. And he had had a heart that was just unable to believe such a thing. And Gabriel rebuked him for his lack of belief and struck him mute until the baby should be born. He comes out of the temple, and everybody has realized that something was going on. He was in there forever. He comes out of the temple, and he... um, is unable to speak, and um, Elizabeth later conceives, and um, we remember all that part of the story up until that point. So let's begin this time. Um, we'll pick up here in chapter 1, verse 60, I'm sorry, verse 57, and we're going to finish chapter 1 today. Let's go ahead and read the text together, beginning from verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, And he spoke, blessing to God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, there we have the story of the birth of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, we sometimes call him. Chapter 2 then goes from there to the birth of Jesus. But just notice as we begin sort of contemplating this passage, one of the things that by this point begins to stand out to me, and I hope you've noticed the same thing, is the remarkable storytelling of Luke. Luke 
as you're probably aware, was a physician. He was an educated person. He was a Gentile um, by birth. He was a, a Greek person by ethnicity. But he was also a magnificent storyteller, particularly as I read through the book of Acts, which he also, of course, wrote. The storytelling ability of Luke is remarkable to me. And even already, we're just finishing up the first chapter. Sometimes it can be hard to pick this up as we sort of go piece by piece, but if you read through the story, the story just draws you in. And by this point in the story, Luke has drawn the reader in to, to, the, to the purpose of having the reader, we now associate ourselves in the story. And, and that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to ask ourselves, how would we react in these situations? What if we were Zechariah in the temple? Would we have believed? Would we believe that Messiah is now coming? Would we believe that God is intervening into the actions of people? Would, 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 be, would, believe, would we believe these things? He wants us to identify ourselves into the story like this. And of course, he's writing to Theophilus, and his goal is for Theophilus to himself ask these important questions of himself. So his storytelling ability is, is helping us to relate to the story. But at this point in the story, of course, um, what we see here in this section with the birth of John the Baptizer. We could spend a, quite a lot of time on this section, particularly the prophecy of Zechariah. But I don't. Um, I want to kind of move on through it. But as we do it, I want to notice at least three things about what Luke is saying to Theophilus in this section. First, I, first I want us to notice the joy of Elizabeth and her family and her relatives as the baby John is born. Secondly, I want us also to notice the faith of Zechariah and how that faith has grown and been strengthened and has now reached a point which is a different point than it was nine months ago. And then thirdly, I want us to notice, of course, what Luke is saying to Theophilus about this baby, not John, but this baby Jesus that is to follow John. Notice in all of Zechariah's prophecy, only two lines are devoted to his son, and the rest is to the one that his son will proclaim, Jesus. So as we begin from verse 57, now the time for Elizabeth to give now came the time for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to, to her, and they rejoiced with her. So there's great happiness and celebration. The birth of their first child, always a, a time of celebration, right? It's um, um, hard to imagine it not being a joyful time. So we might say, well, that's to be expected. We wouldn't expect anything less than Elizabeth and her friends and family to celebrate and be joyful along with her. However, let's look closely at how Luke phrases this. He doesn't say that they were joyful and happy because John was born. He says, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And I think, I think that Luke chose his words very carefully there. It's not to say that Elizabeth and her family and friends weren't happy for the birth of the baby, but it is to say that I don't think that's necessarily what Luke is saying. I think he's saying, just what he writes, that they rejoice 
because they see the hand of God in her life. They rejoice because they see that Elizabeth has been the object of mercy, the object of grace. In other words, their happiness and their joy comes from the fact that they perceive God's actions in the life of Elizabeth. And I want to suggest to us that that really is the foundation of Christian joy. The foundation of Christian joy, or or maybe I should say Christian happiness, because happiness is connected to happenings or circumstances. Christian happiness is something that comes not necessarily from the happenings or the circumstances, but from, from our perception of God's activity in our life and in the lives of others. We as God's people, we should be people that train ourselves to see the hand of God in our life and the lives of others. And seeing the hand of God, we are joyful to see God working in the lives of others. It's it's on one hand it's a very simple thought. On another hand, it is a profound thing to to train your spiritual eyes to see God's hand working in the lives of those around you. I want to connect this to another example that Luke also gives us. This one comes in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11. And once again, kind of like Elizabeth's story, it's something that we could easily sort of overlook if we're reading too fast, but it's the story of Barnabas. You know Barnabas, who was given the name Encourager, because he was just such an encourager to people. Well, we um, we hear Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. The situation here is that revival has broken out in a place called Antioch. And people are getting saved, and Jesus is being proclaimed, and there's people being converted, and and the church in Jerusalem hears about this, and they send somebody from Jerusalem to investigate, to see exactly what's happening in Antioch, because they've heard these rumors of this incredible revival that's going on there. So you don't have to necessarily turn there, but just listen as I read from verse um, 21. The hand of the Lord was, was with those in Antioch, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. That's just a quick little phrase that you could miss, but I think it connects in perfectly with Elizabeth and how her friends and family saw the mercy of God and were happy, joyful. As people of God, let me just encourage you to be ever mindful of seeing God working in the lives of people around you, allowing that to be a producer of joy in you, and then I think even more importantly, be one that points that out to people. It's amazing to me how often people don't even see the activity of God in their own life until perhaps another believer comes along and through whatever experience they say, that's God at work. It's God working. You don't necessarily know exactly everything he's doing, but I can see that God is working in your life. I can see that God is having mercy as he's He's extending grace to you in your life. Be a person that recognizes that. It's like what you said before about you can live with a flesh mind or you can live with your spiritual mind. Mm -hmm. You can be in that realm. Mm -hmm. And if you live in that realm, then 
Exactly. Two two realities. There are there are two realities: a spiritual reality and a physical reality. And uh, be in tune with the with the spiritual reality that's happening around us. So, exactly. So um, we see the joy of Elizabeth as um, she and her friends and family recognize the mercy of God. Then verse verse fifty nine. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So apparently, this is now the eighth day, which was the custom of the Jews. Not only was it the custom, it was what God commanded. On the eighth day, the child was to be circumcised. And apparently, um, the custom has arisen that, that that's also the day that the child is named. Not necessarily something God commanded them, but this seems to now be their custom that on the circumcision is when the name is given or announced or made known or whatever. So um, they, uh, it says in verse 59, they would have called him Zechariah. Now remember, Zechariah can't speak. So he's not the one that would have called him Zechariah. And by saying they would have called him Zechariah, we assume that what Luke means is everybody else is getting ready to name the child Zechariah. Apparently, the real Zechariah hasn't said anything for so long that nobody's expecting him to say anything. And so they sort of take it on themselves to attach the name to this child, which is a little strange, at least to me, that somebody else would name your child. But that seems to be what they're about to do, that they're about to name him Zechariah after his father, which would, I guess, have been the custom. But then verse 60, But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. So, Elizabeth knows of what Gabriel said to Zechariah. She knows that, apparently, because Zechariah has communicated it to her. Maybe he's written it down um, on a tablet or, or somehow communicated it to her. He couldn't speak it to her. But he has told her what Zechariah told him in the temple, which is that the child is to be called John. And notice, of course, that her faith is resolute. She has no doubt. She's not wavering on holding fast to what the angel proclaimed. His name is to be John, and so Elizabeth stands fast on that. No, he's not going to be named Zechariah. He's going to be named John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. How crazy. I mean, none of your people have ever been named John. What kind of weird name is that? Right? But nobody's ever been named John, and so... Why would you want to name your child John? Um, and verse 62, And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, if you think that the Bible is some dry, humorless book, then you're not reading it closely enough. The scriptures are full of humor, particularly Luke. Luke has what I think is one of the best senses of humor of any of the, of the biblical writers. Luke and Acts contain some of the most humorous episodes found in Scripture, particularly Acts. You know, you, you can't hardly read the seven sons of Sceva without chuckling to yourself. It, you, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who are you again? Um, or, you know, Paul preaching so late that Eutychus falls asleep and falls out the window. I mean, you, you can't hardly read those without sort of chuckling to yourself. And here, I think Luke is also injecting a little bit of humor because, notice, they uh, Elizabeth says, no, he's going to be called John. And so they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's see what Zechariah has to say. And they start making signs to him as though he can't hear. The angel said that he couldn't speak. And we're not told anything about his hearing. So 
There's no reason, I don't think, to assume that he can't hear. But because he can't speak, then maybe they're, they're just making these hand signals or hand signs to him. And it's just, to me, it's kind of this humorous miscommunication sort of thing where Zacharias thinking the whole time, I can hear you just fine, I just can't speak, and you don't need to do the hand signal thing. This uh, awkward sort of non-communication <laughs> reminds me, we've all probably been there, where there is sort of this communication barrier, there's maybe a language barrier, and Americans, we're, we're so good at this, we think that the language barrier can be overcome by just talking more loudly and more slowly and kind of get closer to the person and they can somehow understand our language. Kind of the same sort of thing. He hears them just fine. They're sort of making these hand signals, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. So he doesn't speak it, but he still says it with writing. And what he says is what the angel says is true. His name will be John. And so um, the time of silence, the nine months of silence, is then ended. They all wondered about this, but immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing to God. So we'll stop right there at verse 64 for just a minute. He speaks sort of an affirmation of what the angel has declared. And in speaking this affirmation of what the angel has declared, the curse is concluded, his tongue is loose, and he speaks, and the first thing he speaks is blessing to God. Um, let's make a note to ourselves of, of just how this period of adversity has affected Zechariah. Because this was a significant period of adversity, wasn't it? It was nine months without being able to speak. Now, what was a blessing to Elizabeth was, was a curse to Zechariah because we've all, I think, can probably relate to, you know, you get a cold or something and you have a couple of days where you can't talk and it's just frustrating as all get out, isn't it? I mean, you are, you can probably tell us better than anybody just how frustrating it is to, to not be able to speak. Or when you can speak, it's just a whisper. For nine months, Zechariah was unable to communicate in any sort of fluid fashion any of his thoughts or, or needs or desires. Or He was unable to communicate those things for nine months. It had to be a period of great adversity. And he comes out of the adversity with two things. Faith that is stronger and lips that are ready to praise God. I put in your notes here that adversity always yields either that or the opposite. It always either yields faith and praise for God, or it yields doubt and cynicism. Adversity in the life of the Christian always yields either increased faith and praise for God, or doubt and cynicism. And the key to the difference is our response. How is it that some Christians can endure adversity and trials and suffering and their faith is strengthened and their praise for God is deepened 
and others will experience trials and suffering, oftentimes even to a lesser degree, and their result is the opposite. It's doubt and cynicism. How is it that the same types of trials can produce opposite results in different Christians? And the answer is that it is our reaction. It is our response to the trials. Trials and suffering are not some sort of magic potion from God. They're not some sort of divine pixie dust that he sprinkles over us and automatically makes us more like Jesus. We often say, and we're right to say this, we often say that our sufferings, our trials, make us more like Jesus. That's true with the caveat that you have the correct response to your suffering. The incorrect response doesn't yield Christ-likeness. It yields just the opposite. It takes you in the opposite direction. Let's see if the scriptures support what I just said. Take a look in your notes at 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice here what Peter says. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God. It's not just the enduring of sorrows and suffering unjustly, but it is doing so while mindful of God. Or in other words, with a focus towards God, with a heart that is looking to Him for your strength and your encouragement and your salvation and your deliverance through what you may be suffering or His purpose in what you are suffering. Mindful of God while suffering means that this is a gracious thing. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He says, what uh, what good does that do you if you uh, do something wrong, suffer the consequences for it, big deal. But if you do good and suffer for it, then you endure. In other words, you maintain your faith. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now here's the example. Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. And here's what His steps look like. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, when he suffered, he responded in a Christ-like way and maintained his faith in the Father. And so Peter says, this is a gracious thing. When you do as Jesus did, when you suffer in ways that are mindful of God, you maintain your focus on God. You you do not sin in your suffering, but instead you react in Christ-like ways. And you remain faithful. You remain uh, steadfast in your faith towards God. Or take a look at James chapter 1. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We could stop right there and say, okay, um, that sounds pretty automatic. Testing, steadfastness. But look at what James says. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, in other words, there's a process that steadfastness takes within us. There there are things that that suffering with faith does. There's a process. And James says, let that process have its effect in you. 
And the process is you face suffering in Christ-like ways. The faith-strengthening effect of our trials is dependent upon our response. I think what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 5 is that the faith-strengthening aspect of of trials, the the quality of suffering that can produce Christ-likeness, it can be muted when our response to those trials is a deficient one. Take a look at Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces hope. If suffering produced hope, then we could say, okay, let me suffer, and the result will be hope. Paul says suffering produces something else, and that produces something else, and that produces hope. In other words, suffering produces endurance. As we suffer and we have faith in our suffering, our experience shows us that Christ is completely reliable, that God is utterly utterly trustworthy. As we endure trials while looking to God for our strength and our deliverance, we see over and over again that He is trustworthy and that produces endurance. We endure because we've seen God come through for us. And that endurance produces character. The character of faith, the character of trust, and that produces hope. What Zechariah emerges from his time of adversity with, with increased faith. So in other words, it's not just one equals one. It is step A leads to step B, step B leads to step C, and step C results in increased faith, increased joy, praise for God, those sorts of things. So I think the scriptures support what we're saying. I think the scriptures teach us that trials and suffering for the Christian are not sort of this autopilot thing that we... we Uh, don't enjoy them, we don't like them, but we know we're going to come out the other side being more like Jesus. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. However, Zechariah does. He endures his time of adversity, the time of silence. Can you imagine how much time you're able to contemplate what the angel said and you're able to contemplate the promises of God that he as a priest knows when you have nine months and nothing to say. Imagine he did a lot of meditation during those nine months, and he's come out the other side being a man of even stronger faith. So immediately, he blesses God. The first thing out of his mouth, he praises God. And fear came on all their neighbors. One of the patterns that I see, particularly in the New Testament, is the pattern that radical faith is something the world can't handle. Radical faith, faith faith that a person not only believes in the promises of God, but acts on them. The James 2, verse 17 kind of faith. The world doesn't know how to handle that. And so the reaction that we often see when true faith is demonstrated is fear. Take a look in your notes, just a few examples I thought of. Acts chapter 5, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Or Matthew 9, the crowd saw what Jesus had just done. They were afraid. 
They were afraid. Or Mark 10, verse 32. They were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Those were just a handful of examples, but I think we could search the New Testament and come up with, with at least eight to ten more examples of when Jesus or a follower of Jesus is acting in radical ways on his faith and it produces fear from those who see it. The world doesn't know how to handle radical, true, genuine faith. So um, the fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? What then will this child be? Notice, not who, but what will this child be? Luke is setting us up. Because what will the child be? The child will be the forerunner of Christ. Christ is the one that it's important for us to ask, who is he? John, the question is, what is he? What is his role? What will, he, what will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then here's his prophecy, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, once again, Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures show us, always means that you are you are given compelling words to say about Jesus. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means you speak testimony for Jesus that is true and compelling and genuine. So Zacharias filled with the Spirit and he has something to say. Blessed be the God of the the, uh, the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. <coughs> And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, we could spend a lot of time on what Zechariah has to say, but I, was, I want to just pick out a couple things. And the one, one thing I want to pick out is this phrase, the horn of salvation. When um, you hear horn of salvation or horn in Scripture, then um, don't think of horn you know, like, doo -doo 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 -doo. don't think of that kind of horn. Think of the horn of an animal. In the Hebrew way of thinking, the horn of an animal represented the animal's strength. It was, it was sort of a picture, it was a metaphor of the strength, the power of an animal. His horn was his power. Think of a, a you know, mountain sheep or something like that. Um, you can probably relate if you have worked around animals that, that, uh, had horns. You can relate to the, to the power of that animal. If you, uh, worked around cattle, then you know that uh, that uh, cattle or cows are about as docile creatures as it can be, unless they're a mama. And if they're a mama, then they're just sort of the opposite of that. And uh, and a mama cow is something not that uh, that is to be reckoned with. But a mama cow with no horns can can um, can hurt you if they butt you. That that that. But a mama cow that has horns. Can, can put you in the hospital. The, the, there's a huge difference between a cow with horns and a cow without. The, the horn, that holds the power of goring your enemy. So the horn is an image of strength. And it's an image of power. And so Zechariah calls Jesus the horn of our salvation. The power the strength of our salvation. The um, prophecy goes on later to say, 
verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. We serve Him without fear because He is the horn of our salvation. He is the power, the strength that that must be reckoned with, that cannot be overcome. He is the horn of our salvation. Just a few scriptures came to mind. I'll just bring your attention to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So I encourage you this week to think, to meditate on Jesus as the horn of your salvation. Now the other thing I want to draw attention to is, um, is of course, um, here at the end, the child grew and became strong in spirit, speaking of John, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So we all know the story of John the baptizer. Camel's hair, he eats locusts and wild honey, he's kind of this weird dude that, um, you know, if he were alive today, he would smell really bad and probably be homeless because he lived in the wilderness. And I want to just make a connection between him and his father. His father emerges from this time of adversity, from this time of solitude, in which he doesn't speak. And interestingly enough, his son is one who then, we assume he seeks solitude for a long period of time. Perhaps he saw in his father, perhaps Zechariah taught him, Here's what I learned in that period. Or perhaps Zechariah became a man after that period that would pursue that in his life, pursue solitude with God because he learned the value of it there. And so maybe that's why John the baptizer was one who, who sought that. We don't know. But uh, in any case, the last thing I want to draw our attention to, look at verse 76. And uh, you, child, uh, this is the, these are the only statement that he makes about his son. The rest is about Jesus. And you, speaking to his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So John is to give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting when we think of what John's message was. John's message, of course, was a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath, you brood of vipers? His message was a fiery message of sin and repentance. And his father says of him, your role will be to provide knowledge of salvation to your people for the forgiveness of sins. I would submit to you that the concept of forgiveness of sins is not an attractive concept to anyone unless they know of their need for forgiveness of sins. Unless a person knows that they are in need of being forgiven, then the idea of a Messiah who offers them forgiveness is not only not an attractive idea, it's an offensive idea. Which is why, by the way, that the world is so offended at the gospel message. The message of free forgiveness, acceptance by God through virtue of, of His Son's sacrifice, who would be offended at such a message? Those who don't think that they need such forgiveness. It wouldn't be good news to me 
where did it, the service sort of concludes and and out here in the in the kitchen area um, you come up to me and you say hey Jason I'm going to give you a quick ride right over to the ER thanks but no thanks that's not how I really care to spend my Sunday afternoon that's not good news unless you say to me you're exhibiting signs of a stroke and you don't know this but you need to get to the ER then it's good news it's only good news if you know that you're in need of it without knowledge of that need it offends you because it attacks your own idea of your own goodness, your concept of your own righteousness. And so John's role is to be, among other things, the one who teaches Israel of their need for what Messiah will follow him to do. But sadly, just like our day, most in John's day didn't hear or receive that message. And so as he hung from the cross, purchasing that forgiveness. He was mocked and ridiculed, laughed at and scorned because most people thought he was doing something that they didn't need to be done. So bear that in mind as we interact with those around us. I think it was Richard that um, sent, you sent me a text this week about a conversation that Rose had had with hope I'm not divulging something, but conversation with somebody, you're trying to witness to them, and you're sort of frustrated that they can't see. Knowledge of the need of forgiveness is whose job? The Holy Spirit's job. That's what Jesus is. He will convict the world of sin. Or, or go back to my uh, sort of sick analogy. Um, a person that is, uh, say for example, um, ex uh, having a life that is utterly dependent upon the intake of large amounts of alcohol. And that's destroying their life. And their friends come and say to them, listen, um, there's, there's a really good place I could take you. We'll get you dried out. We'll be right there with you through the... Are you crazy? No, I ain't going there. I don't need that until they recognize what their problem is, then your solution is a slap in their face. Or, you know, to, to use another analogy, um, if, you've ever, if you've ever been around someone who, who just moments after a traumatic injury, like uh, just a, a, a traumatic injury to a limb or something, um, our body has a, a wonderful way of just sort of blocking that out for for a period of time, and um, and it's quite common for people who have been in a car accident to not realize that they're badly hurt for a period of time. And if you've ever you know had that comment, you know, lay down, sit down, sit down, sit down. No, 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 no. They don't realize what's wrong with them, and so your help is not welcome. Take that, I think, to just a tremendously greater degree into the spiritual realm. That's what we sound like to non-believers when we say, Jesus' forgiveness is, is 
free. He's, he's purchased it. It's done. <laughs> we just have to trust in him. That's not a welcomed message for someone who has not grasped their sinfulness and their need for that message. So the same disconnect that you're talking about, it's a huge disconnect. The connection, furthermore, is not something we can ever make. The connection is a Holy Spirit connection. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can speak to a person's heart and convince them that they are a sinner and desperately in need of mercy from God. Dunking them hard. in the baptismal. Does it make it hard about children? Yes. Do they really understand the state that they're in? Yes, because the other really the other side to that is um, sin brings the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a very fearful thing. Fear, like we've said before, is a powerful motivator. And so it is It is really easy to manipulate someone with fear and receive some type of response that appears genuine, but the motivator there was, was a total fear motivator. So it, it, it's, it's a... Thank God that we have Holy Spirit. That, that this... Okay, we don't have to figure all this out. That, that it's really... It's His work. He is the only one that saves. He's the only one that convicts of sin. He's the only one that regenerates. He uses us. He uses our word. But thank God that He is the one that goes ahead of us to the hearts of people. And He's the one that fills our words with truth. So um, the uh, the takeaway from that is how desperately we need to pray for action of the Holy Spirit. We talk about revival. It, it, it's all about it's all about just imploring the Holy Spirit to come work. you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.